Adir, what's your experience been with SEO across all the businesses you've worked with? Well, I actually had an agency that did SEO at one point in time. And so through that, I, I was not the SEO guy. And through that, I got some insight into just how um, complicated and sophisticated SEO is. And since then, I've tried a variety of different people and solutions, and it's a bit of a mix and match for me. I don't have a very sharp answer for you on that. We're the same. We, I reckon we've cycled through a dozen agencies before we discovered Portal Ventures. And these guys are the real deal. We actually use them at Luxury Escapes, and our SEO traffic has jumped dramatically. We also use them in a business called Bookwell, which I used to chair. And the SEO there was so good, we actually were able to sell the business to the global leader, almost purely based on how much organic traffic we had from SEO. The guys at Portal Ventures work with some of the best Australian marketplaces and e-commerce businesses, including Flipper, Programmer, Mad Paws, Camplify, and Autoguru. These guys are literally the best of the best. Exclusive to Contrarians listeners, the team at Portal will give you a free one-hour consultation if you mention Contrarians. To get in touch with Mike and the team, call them on 1300-121-261 or go to www.portal.ventures. Hi everyone, and welcome to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir, the only pod that takes you behind the scenes and gives you the inside word on the world of tech and growth from the insiders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of Luxury Escapes, journalist and angel investor. And I'm joined by my great mate, Adir Schiffman, executive chairman of Catapult Sports and serial investor. In today's episode, we talk about the horrific rental car industry and the growth of the amazing Turo, the Adore Beauty takeover offer, and our best and worst retail experiences. Episode 20, uh, I'm not sure, do you think we'd make 20 episodes, idea? I, I think there are a few doubters out there. Well, I'm the kind of person that is just overly ambitious about everything, and probably my projection is that we're going to run into the millions of episodes and we'll have billions of listeners, but that you know, but that's how you've got to be with a startup founder, isn't it? You've got to just be ridiculously over-enthusiastic and totally unrealistic about the probabilities. And so I've been afflicted with that my whole life. I, I, I will say to you, if it makes you feel better, that some people said to me, one person in particular said, I noticed you started counting the episodes at the, at the beginning, or Adam did here, and I was a bit worried, like, <laughs> that, you know, when it was three and four, whether you'd actually ever get to the double digits. So there you go. You've at least proved that person, or you've confounded that person. 20 is good. We get so much great feedback from uh, from listeners, and they're so they're so generous with their feedback. And I, I know I'm incredibly grateful for the feedback we get. I'm sure you are as well. But such kind praise from from all manner of people that I wouldn't expect to be a listeners and be devoted listeners and see just so so effusive in their praise. Yeah, absolutely agree. Absolutely agree. It, it's I always find it embarrassing. Like somebody said to me the other day, they messaged me and they said a friend of theirs had, in fact many friends of theirs had said to them that they need to listen to this podcast. And I know this person quite well or particularly well, and I found it very embarrassing. And I said, oh, I don't know if you're going to cringe or not because you know me so well. If you, you know, maybe you just want to sit down and you can have the one-on-one with me. (laughs) You don't have to listen to the podcast. Anyway, he's going to listen to the podcast. Hopefully he thinks it's good. Hopefully. Hopefully (laughs) let him down. It's an awkward interaction though. I find it quite an awkward interaction when people say, I listen to your podcast. Well, I love it. You know, People say to me, when they sit down with me for a coffee, they say, this is such a weird experience now. Like, I feel like um, I'm like I, it, it's just an extension of the podcast that I'm listening to, listening to, but now I do it in person. And then they say things to me like, oh, 
you were just in Copenhagen, weren't you? And I'd be like, <laughs> yeah. And they were like, oh, yeah, I know everything about you from the podcast. <laughs> well, it's such, as Scott Galloway says, it's such an intimate medium because you're in people's ears for, for an extended period of time. And I feel that way with the podcasts. I, we're both big listeners of podcasts. And I feel that way with the, pod, the, the Scott Galloway's and the Cara Swishers. And I just started listening on, on your fantastic recommendation. Uh, we talked, you talked about it last week, the Acquired podcast. That, that was definitely one of the best recommendations I've ever gotten. I listened to I listened to about 10 hours of it this week. That is by far the best podcast, obviously, present company excluded, the best podcast I've ever heard. It's not for everyone because you've got to sort of be an absolute business geek. Uh, but they talk about a business for three and four hours and, and, as you said, break it down. I listened to LVMH one, which you, which you recommended, and the Costco one, which I recommend is even better. Oh, I haven't listened I'll to listen that. to that. It, it is if you're a business junkie, it is unbelievable how good that podcast is. I, I loved it. It's fair to say they put a slightly more time into planning their podcast than we put into this one. I think the article you sent me about it that I read, they say they reckon they put 100 hours into each episode. That's correct. Obviously, this is their full-time, almost their full-time job now. But um, but it's excellent. I think they, they do effectively a longer version of what we do in some ways and probably a slightly better version. They've got, I think they've got 500,000 listeners now and they showed that graph of just – parabolic increase and our, our actually our listening increase has been pretty similar we're, we're pretty much increasing well i don't know what the annual increase rate would be because it's still new but we're sort of five percent a week which i think when you compound five percent that's pretty significant growth a big thank you to everyone who does recommend the podcast because ultimately we grow obviously we've got, we've got audiences on social but we really do grow through recommend and how luxury escapes grew essentially as well through people talking to other people about it and that social proof because there's only so many podcasts you can listen to and uh, my pop my schedule is pretty full so acquired will knock out something that i listen to hopefully not this hopefully definitely not this but uh <laughs> i actually love but obviously because I, I get to listen to you again but i love listening to our podcast more than any other po- obviously myself i can take or leave but but with you and i listen to when i'm running and it's i, I love listening to, to hearing your your thoughts and analysis as to as to my family, who again probably could take or leave me. I find it so cringy to listen to myself. Like I force myself to do it because every time I listen to an episode, I think, oh, I could have done that better. And then it's a way to get improved for the following week. But I find the whole thing so cringy. And I've never met anyone, not a single person who has said, oh, I love listening to my own voice on recorded. Like I think it's a universal hatred. I definitely <sighs> cringe at myself when I listen to it. Oh, I'm a bit more of a fan of myself than, than you are of yourself. No, you can't be more of a fan of you than I am of you. You might be more of a fan of yourself than I am of myself. Oh, mate. no, I'm, I'm kind of being I'm being a bit um, a bit of a smart ass. But I used to I used to um, do this Sky business. You remember Sky business is not the, pro, the station isn't on anymore. I used to do this sort of. This is when I was much. I was like sort of 28, 29, 30. I, I was on this this show. They used to have various sort of caught business journalists on there and obviously I used to be a business journalist for a number of years for, for a smart company crikey and etc etc and i'd go on this show and i'd come home and I'd, I'd sort of watch myself again a bit for self-improvement and a bit sort of just out of interest and my wife would come back and sort of see me watching myself and just look in horror at what kind of <laughs> we weren't married at the time uh and look at what kind of douchebag comes, comes home and watches himself which i i don't know how you can do it i can't do it but i mean it by the way it is important to watch yourself after you do something because it's the only way you can improve. But I can't do it. I find it too overwhelmingly uh, overwhelmingly cringy. So good on you for doing it. The first episode I ever did, it was terrible. I, kept, I took some notes and because and it was, I was, like, I was pretty young and I, and I wasn't fully sure. So I kept looking down at these notes for some stupid reason. And I was looking down, looking down, and it was just horrendous. And people made the comment, and why do you keep looking down? 
uh, and ultimately, <laughs> certainly didn't do that again. But but yeah, you really need. It's a bit like looking at yourself skiing or looking at yourself playing golf. The, the the feedback loop you get from from the visual, I found really important. And the same was listening to ourselves on this and what we're doing. Hopefully, we've improved this podcast from episode one. Uh, but I think you do get better at once you once you do a lot more of it, you just get better. Well, the most stressful. Um, TV appearance I think I've ever done was I would have been a similar age to what you just described, so late 20s, and I did the Today Show. We'd done this piece of research at Global Reviews about contact centres, and it was quite damning, and they invited me onto the Today Show. And who were the – I forget the name of the people on the Today Show, but Carl, Carl Stefanovic, he was one of the – And Lisa? Lisa was it Lisa Lisa, Wilkinson? Lisa Wilkinson? Famous from the Brittany Higgins um, yes. trial happening now. And so let me tell you my experience. So I was very stressed out <laughs> doing it. And like I generally love these kind of things, but I, it was a you know it was when linear TV was still a big yeah, thing, and the Today absolutely. Show was huge. And they treated me so nicely. Yeah, Carl and I love Carl. Lisa, they were so nice to me, and they relaxed me so much. And we had this conversation, and it is basically a blur to me. But I remember that after I finished, people said to me. Oh, you got a lot of laughs out of the two of them. And I remember thinking, you know, that just makes me so happy. Like I just think if I can get some laughs out of people, like that that's a that's a been a good day. And so, but I really have no recollection of the whole experience. It was just a complete blur to me. Did, did I ever tell you about my sale of the century appearance? No. So anybody who's sort of under 30 probably hasn't come across Sale of the Century, but it was for people sort of our age and above, it was the it was on at seven o'clock on Channel Nine, so it was a big quiz show, uh, and I, I went on. I was pretty young. It might have been the most well-known show on TV, in fairness, at the time. It was huge, yeah, and it, it, a couple of different. Like Glenn Ridge and, and Tony Barber was the early host, and I know just before it ended, actually. So, but it was still big. It was still popular and big. And I remember going and I filmed at the old Channel Nine studios in Bendigo Street and uh, Burnley. There, the, I remember the entire experience. I remember I was super nervous. Then you calm down pretty quickly once you're on. It becomes pretty natural. But certainly the first bit, I was nervous. But and I actually won a couple of episodes Did you? and then lost on my third. But I was I was super young, so I would have been one of the youngest people probably ever on the show. And that definitely worked against me because I just didn't have the the depth of knowledge that. The others had, and I won two episodes. I was pretty lucky because the guy who there was a guy who was winning, and then he, I think he lost, and the person who beat him didn't come back. So I, I was against fresh people. I wasn't against the carryover champ. So it, I had a really good run, but it was a great episode. It was it was amazing. I actually put it on YouTube. It had like seventy thousand views or something like that. I put the clip on. It. I'm going to be looking at it tonight, <laughs> like immediately after <laughs> I'll send this. It to you. But do you remember what prizes you? Yeah, do you remember absolutely. what prizes you said no to? Oh well. I won because you win. Remember the end of the episode, you choose, you get the big prize, and I, I was always going to. If I got a good big prize, say I won the car, I would have just left. But yeah. the first night yeah. I won like a jukebox, so that was useless. Like, and the second night I won a pool table, again, pretty useless. So, yeah. a, a card to sell. I, I won some tool. I won about eight thousand bucks of stuff. I like that your your thought process was not who a pool table and a and a jukebox that would be great for a man cave. <laughs> your thought was. How the hell am I going to be able to put this? Probably it was what year was this? This is two thousand and one. Okay, so it might have been eBay. It might Tra- have still trading. Been a trading post. Post. I used. I, I sold yeah, my tools. So set. you were like, yeah. <laughs> how am I going to be able to flog a pool table exactly. and jukebox and, tra- and it's massive. In the trading place? Not easy. Yeah. Well, I, I, I won this tool set. This like pretty big tool set, and I sold it for like three grand. Uh, Somebody like came, picked it up, put it in his car, off he drove. Uh, so that that worked pretty it, well. It's just so incredible that your memory of being on. 
probably the biggest show in Australia, definitely the biggest quiz show for that decade, at least a decade in Australia. Your memory of that fundamentally is that you managed to flog a tool set for three thousand dollars. <laughs> well, I remember all of it. I remember walking in and you got you got to have lunch at the Channel Nine canteen and you had your makeup done and Katrina was the assistant. I remember a lot about it because it was just such a, a, a pivotal moment. But the amount of people who watched that show, who like just happened to be watching it, it was a Friday night. I, I hadn't told anyone except my, my then girlfriend was in the audience. But other than that, nobody because they film it way in advance, yeah, it's about right? Three months, and also you never get you're not actually guaranteed to go to air, so you don't get your prizes till after it runs, obviously. And the show ended not long after, like maybe six months after I was on, so I could have missed it completely. But it was such a Incredible, and the amount of people that like there would have been thousands of people, I reckon, that saw it and mentioned it. Not, obviously, not the listenership of this show, which is many, many thousands. But it was, yeah, it was such an uh, incredible experience. Maybe, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll, I'll, I'll link to the YouTube episode in, in on our on our LinkedIn page. In the heyday of that show, when Bri- when who was the original Tony Barber? Tony Barber, the multi talented Tony Barber, who turned out to be a crooner as well. I wouldn't call him a singer. He's like a crooner of like these classic songs, right? And and I think he did Carols by Candlelight for some I think years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, you know, yeah. it was such a big show in, I'm going to say, probably late 80s, early 90s, maybe early 90s. I would sit down on the sofa every night with my parents and like in my house, it was like a, you know, like a very special big deal if I was able to answer one of the questions that they asked, you know, as a little kid. Well, and like my parents were really encouraging of like just knowledge and like, it, and so it was like this uh, really fun, nice family thing that we did every night. Well, the, the whole challenge, the, the questions weren't that challenging. In many cases, weren't that challenging. You really had to guess the question, not guess the answer. Was was a lot because you got to sort of you got to jump in before the questions finished, uh, which was the challenge, and that kind of helped me because I'm I'm generally pretty quick, but don't have the depth of knowledge that. So I don't win many trivia nights, for example. Yeah. But I was pretty good at Sailor Century, so it's about speed, not. I was going to tell you this last thing about Sailor Century. So my recollection, my I don't know if my dad listens to this podcast or whether he's going to ever hear me say this, but my recollection is he is astonishingly knowledgeable about trivia like but but quite sophisticated trivia not meaningless trivia yeah like world yeah. facts and i think my mum persuaded him to go for the audition and he did it for solar century or for something else yeah for solar century and my recollection pretty clearly and he's like a very honest person he wouldn't like embellish stuff the feedback i got from him about what happened is they said to him that he had answered like too many of the questions correctly but because they're looking for a band of people to let on the show and basically he just like topped out of the his trivia knowledge. So, yeah, I, I found that – I was very proud of him for, for having that outcome. Well, I remember – so you, you, the way you go and you go to this um, church hall and they give you a test of 50 questions and you have – I think, yeah, you have to get at least 40, 40 right or something like that and maybe your dad got them all right and he, he – it was too much. Anyway, the first time I got it, I think I got like 38. I went with a friend. My friend got in and I got like, I, I missed out on one or two questions. I went then went and sat it a second time, like six months later. And for some reason they sat, they asked the same questions and I've got a pretty oh good memory. God. When I get something wrong, I generally won't get it wrong the second time. So I got, I got like 48 right. That's fantastic. So obviously I got in and I was young, so I was a bit of a novelty. Uh, so I basically got in because they didn't change the questions. Probably assumed nobody would ever sit the test twice. What motivated you to want to do it? I, I like the show. I, I don't know. I can't remember. I wouldn't do it. I think that my ego wouldn't deal with 
losing? Like, because I like to think of myself as like having a pretty good pool of knowledge and being up in front of all these people and losing and having this emotion, which is you're not as smart as you think you are, even though it's trivia, right? It's not really intelligence. Yeah. I know, you were, you were I think, young at the time. No, I think being... my ego is much more um, – I've got much more control of my ego now in life than I did in my early 20s, that's for sure. And I think my ego couldn't have dealt with losing, I think, in front of uh, in front of Australia. I didn't want to oh, – when I did it, they had that weird – they only brought this in briefly, but they, they booted somebody out before the fast money at the end, the 60 seconds at the end. So what I didn't want to be is the person who got booted out. So I wanted to go to, go to, go to fast money. Uh, and I got to fast money, and that was, and that was that. Um, but yeah, I didn't want it. That, that would have been embarrassing to, to be the, you know, they basically dimmed the light on you. It was like super embarrassing. So I didn't want them to beat you out. <laughs> That's so, horrible. So thankfully, um, anyway, enough about that. It's like that weakest link show. That was horrible. Yeah, exactly. That was like you are the weakest link. I mean, yeah, do you want to take that with you through life? Yeah. That was terrible. I mean, how has your week been? Just getting to more current affairs. Is it permissible for me to say a business thing on this podcast now, Adam? Because we technically are a business show. Yeah. We've been talking for solo century for the last ten minutes. Um. So, so this is. I had, I want to tell you two experiences I had that were interconnected, very short, uh, that I think you'll find interesting. Tell me what you think about one of the two. We can tell me both, but I want your view on one in particular. So, one quick aside is this. I needed to book an Uber to go from one part of Melbourne to another part of Melbourne this week. I went to Uber Premium or Premier or whatever it was. They offered me, they were sending me a Model 3 Tesla. I thought you refused to take normal Ubers and you'd only take the expensive ones. No, I only click on this Premium. It's not much more expensive. Let's not get carried away. It was like $10 more, right? But like they were going to send me a Model 3. I was like, that's a terrible passenger experience, a Model 3 (laughs) Tesla. Terrible. It's terrible. I cancelled it. I booked something called Uber Comfort. They sent me like a big Toyota SUV, like a Kluger. I don't know what they're called or whatever it is. It was super comfortable. I said to the guy that was driving, who his English was not fantastic, um, and I didn't, let's just say, we didn't discuss my views on the Middle East war with the driver. So I said to him, why can you drive Uber Premium? And he said, no, my car is not allowed to doesn't qualify for Uber Premium. I said, why is that? He said, oh, it's like not nice enough. And I thought, there is something wrong with the system that because it's a Tesla, they think it's a premium car, but actually it's a pretty unpleasant car to sit in the back of, whereas this much nicer car to sit in, like I got to buy that more cheaply. So they are not pushing price elasticity to its limits at the moment with Uber, in my view. Do you have a view on big cars generally, before I give my view? Getting picked up in an Uber, in a big in an SUV, big SUV with Uber? No, just, just big cars, not, not Uber, just big cars in general. Do I have a general view? Oh, is this, like, do you think, do you mean, am I angry with drivers of SUVs for distress? the environment is that the question i don't have a view on big cars i'm less bothered about the environment i I don't think the environment thing's great but what i hate about big cars the the rams well the rams that they've just brought in australia into australia from the u.s are uh, not good for australia in my view like they don't fit into parking spots they take up too much space I, i don't know if you can ban cars but if you could i would probably say there's a maximum dimension that you can drive as a as a with a regular license in Australia. Yeah, I agree. I would love to see – the other biggest problem with these big cars, and Rams are one, but there's others as well, is they're, just, they're basically known as kid killers because you can't see kids. More importantly, if a kid gets hit by one, instead of going on the bonnet, you just basically get dragged out of it and killed. So you've got Dan Andrews who, who famously taxed EVs, has now been overturned by the High Court, but the so-called progressive Dan Andrews taxing EVs but allowing these kid killers in. I'd love to see politicians actually do something positive and ban these big cars because they just shouldn't be allowed. 
I wonder, you know, politicians are quite sophisticated at knowing how to get elected. And so I wonder if they've just done the maths and worked out if we ban these things, the number of people that will vote for us for banning them is probably pretty low. Like lots of people would like them banned, but not enough to vote for it. And anyone that we ban that wanted one, well, we've lost that vote. And so welcome to democracy. <laughs> They're not going to get banned. Well, it's not even democracy. It's, it's it's small special interest groups. And the problem is if your kid gets killed, well, then you don't like them, but till, but nobody thinks it's going to happen. So, But eventually, numbers-wise, kids are getting killed by these things and politicians are encouraging it. It's, uh, it's exactly why... This is a great fallacy of democracy. It's not democracy at all. We got this. We got a. We don't have a de- really democratic government. We have a cronious government. So does the US. So does most liberal democracies now. They've, they've sort of moved on for any sort of form of genuine democracy. I don't know if they ever had one, but now it's just whoever has the most money wins. If I wanted to do what you have just suggested, because of the, for the reasons that you've suggested, I think the way I would approach it is this: you know, ANCAP ratings, which is how safe a car is, they're not compulsory in Australia. You don't have to. And most car companies now, they don't really do them every year. And so I would just legislate if I wanted to do this, rather than making the decision myself and banning stuff, because that's a, a recipe for not getting re-elected. I would just say that. Um, there's compulsory ANCAP testing for any car that wants to be sold in Australia and you have to pass a test that involves not dragging a kid underneath a car if you hit them and that would be the easiest way to stop it. Does ANCAP, I thought that, I, I, I have no idea, but I thought that rated the safety of the car to the driver and the passenger. Does it also rate the risk to pedestrians and third parties? So they assess they assess the risk to pedestrians as part of it. I don't know if they publish it anywhere. What I can tell you is this. Nobody buying a, a Ram cares about the risk to pedestrians. Like they like the fact that they're it's ensconced in a tank, right? And so – but yes, they could easily – so they do measure what it does to pedestrians and they could easily say you have to pass this rating to be able to sell the car in Australia. That would be the way I would do it. That's called passing the buck to a regulator to enforce so I don't have to do it as a politician. Being, when, now that I, I sort of ride a bike around a bit, and I, as a pedestrian you get it as well, but the amount of times like cars just they – don't it's not that I, they dislike bike riders. It's just that they just don't even, even bother to care about them. That's why so many bikes, bike riders get killed and injured is because just drivers just don't, don't give a stuff. They just they don't even look, they don't notice, they don't care, they don't stop. Uh, if it was another car, they would. But when it's a bike ride, obsession, they don't. They just assume I got I got a more powerful instrument that I'm driving, so you can get out of my, out of my way. Well, I think it's hard to see. I've said to you, things on two wheels, people on two wheels are hard to see for a lot of drivers. Like you know this thinking fast and slow, the Daniel Kahneman stuff. So so thinking fast is the auto thinking, and I don't think my view is that drivers are not in auto thinking mode with regards to things, people on two wheels. So they have to switch to slow thinking and pay attention. And it's all over so quickly that I just think people are not attuned. Car drivers are not very attuned to looking out for motorcycles and bikes. That's the challenge. That's probably right. That's probably, that's probably isn't it? And that's all the more reason we shouldn't be allowing these big cars. Although you're still going to have trucks and buses and the like. But the, the less we have with big vehicles, the better. Well, that's, that's right. So do you want to know why I was taking an Uber? Because... I, want, I needed a, a bigger car for something and I wanted to rent it. And I look, and so rental cars, is it's got to be the last bastion of horrendous customer experience oh, just about, right? Yeah, we don't want to get into that. Are, but oh, everyone that universally is, hates them, okay? That is horrendous. Universally. Hated. And they haven't been disrupted for many reasons. And there have been companies like 
like rent my car. I don't know what they're called. Drive my oh, car. Turo. Timmy, Timmy Rosanna's at Turo. So All right. Well, that's what I'm going to talk about. I was going to say, have you ever okay, heard sorry, of- Okay, sorry. Okay, sorry. No, no. You've, no. Because I was going to say to you, have you ever heard of Turo? But before I can even get it out, you're like, well, I'll see you. Have I ever heard on Turo? And I'll tell you the CEO that's running Turo in Australia. So let me tell you about my Turo experience. Which, a big, Tim's a big listener of the show. Well, I he's going to enjoy this because I've never used it before. It is the closest thing I've ever used to the Airbnb of cars. What is the it is the Airbnb of cars? Lots of things have said they're the Airbnb of cars, but the UX, the experience of them, has not been good enough. Why don't you just explain? Let's explain what Turo is to our listeners. I'll, I'll tell you my experience, which will explain what it is. So I wanted to I wanted to rent a car for a couple of days. I went on this platform. I put in the dates. A whole lot of cars appeared there, like as if they were Airbnbs. They were people's cars. I could just choose the one that I wanted. It told me where they were geographically. And then in the process, it said, do you want regular insurance? I think I think regular insurance, like you pay a $1,500 excess and super insurance is like you pay a $500 excess. The reason I took the super insurance, by the way, is I think the research that I did, you know, a lot of credit cards will pay the excess for you, but it seems that because Turo is a platform and not a rental car agency, the, the cards may not the insurance on the cards may not cover that excess. So I paid the extra for that. And li- literally, I clicked on it, paid through the platform. They gave me a $50 discount because it was my first booking, which was completely unnecessary and just increased their cake for no reason. But <laughs> but I took it. Then I went to pick up the car. The guy whose car it was was waiting for me. It was a mini countryman. I don't know, Super Cooper, whatever. Like It was like, it was like driving a, a, a crossover from Mario Kart, basically. And um, it was unbelievably cheap. Like I think four days of hiring this car was $650 plus I think I paid it $150 for insurance or something. But I could have paid $40 for insurance. I paid the extra. It was such a good experience. It was so simple. I went, I drove the car. How much would uh, a rental have cost, just out of curiosity? I presume you price checked. I, I think the total cost of this, let's call it $800 for four days with the insurance reduction, it would have been, for an equivalent car of this, it would have been three times the price, I would say, in a car rental company. The difference is car rentals are, are new cars, whereas this was a 2018 model or something. I don't care. Like, what do I care? Like, it, it, it was perfectly good for what I needed it for. It was a really nice car. And it was fun to drive. And then I dropped it back. I did everything. I gave back, like I exited the app. The guy came out of his house. I gave him back the keys. We had a nice chat. It was just a fantastic experience. I could not recommend this highly enough. If I was going to rent a car now in another city, I would actually catch a, a an Uber probably or a train into the city. And then I would use this app and go and just rent a Turo locally and i think that i don't know how big this company is but based on my one experience i think they're onto something with this company they're, they're getting pretty big my, my cfo chet who's who's pretty good at, at finding stuff he actually used in the and his story is even better than yours he rented a mat he had his whole family i think he may even had his parents as well so he needed like a seven-seater so he had all those big us cars that we talked about so he landed in la and the guy dropped it off at lax so you didn't even have to go anywhere. The guy actually dropped it. I don't know how he got home, but it was that was just – and he saved like thousands. Well, that's the end of rental cars. So when that's happening, that is what Uber did to taxis because what you think to yourself is the, the advantage of this is that it is using a pool of assets that can be monetized at, at a rate 
that is totally different because they're not running a business where there's this cost of capital. It's someone's personal car and presumably they're just getting some bonus money. Like I reckon this guy rented out his mini to me. Eight days of renting it out, he's paid a year's insurance probably for his car. And so it's different economics. And then you think about how could a rental car company protect themselves against that? And what they've got is some version of like the innovator's dilemma, which is they're so entrenched in their existing way of doing things that they couldn't make the transition to this model effectively because it would mm. just destroy the way they make money now. Very different model. So yeah. I, I think um, if you're if they're dropping these cars at the airport, the, the rental car companies are dead. It's just like the exploding star many light years away that has already exploded. The light just hasn't reached yeah. our eyes yet. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great analogy. In the car the guy put an Apple AirTag. Now, he did write it in the description that there was an AirTag, but he put it in the car. That means he tracked everywhere that I went in real time, including my house. What do you think about that conceptually? Mm. Well, you can, if, if, you, if, you, if you did that with a Tesla, you can track the Tesla anyway because the Tesla's tracked to a phone. So it kind of you could do it without the AirTag more obviously if you had a a Tesla, for example, um, I think as long as you know about it, I think it's fine. So you think this is just the world we live in now? The world we live in now is everything and everyone is going to be tracked. Just deal with it. I think you maybe have the option at a time, as long as you know going in that it's going to be tracked. I think it's it's a, a negotiation you make with the with the renter. If you don't want to be tracked, which is also fair enough, uh, then maybe don't take that kind of vehicle or negotiate it out or pay a premium to negotiate. I, I've got uh, it's just a commercial transaction in my view. Do you think that Airbnb should be able to put cameras in Airbnbs? No, I think that's probably a step too far. I think there's there's personal privacy in that kind of stuff, and there's there's sort of knowing about the safety of the car, which I think is a different a different element. What if I said my my cameras in the Airbnb, they're not cameras that capture imagery, they are sensor cameras, so that they're like AI cameras. So what I'm telling you exists. The IA cameras, and all I want to make sure of is that you're not hosting a party in the Airbnb, and this is just going to tell yeah, me that's, that's, how enough. many people are in the room at any point in time. Well, I think you can probably achieve that by having a camera outside the front door as well and the back door. So you're so happy with that? Yeah, I'll be fine with that, 100%. Okay. Well, I mean, I think that I just have to get used to it because I felt a bit – like I wasn't fussed because this guy was really nice, and also I know where his house is. Like I picked the car up from it, right? Can we just can we, can we just deep dive into Turo a little bit more? Because I just and the, and the, I think it's it's yes, worth a longer yep, conversation. Yep. Uh, first, let's just talk about how broken the rental car industry is, yet how big it is. I know there's, they seem to go into Chapter Eleven all the time, so it's it's not always a great business. And a lot of private, it's basically a private equity play thing. They buy it, the cost of capital goes down, they sell it. Go after it's gone up and they make a bunch of money and some other idiot loses a bunch. It tends to be what happens with these businesses. A bit like airlines in many ways. That capital intensive sort of business. But I think rental car businesses make all their money on effectively that insurance thing you talked about. So they charge you a fortune for they're basically finance companies. They charge you a fortune for insurance and you make they make all their money on that and probably overcharging for things like petrol and for damage to the car. <laughs> Speaking about the petrol thing, I can't remember. It was someone's podcast. Someone was one of, It was a billionaire on a podcast. I think I've been Scott from Atlassian actually talking about sort of the frugal ways of founders. And I'm, I'm obviously the same. I'm, I presume you're the same that I will always fill up a rental car before I get back because I don't hate paying the 100% premium on petrol. But if you look at the, time, the value of time, it's, it's a bit like lighting up at a, 
you don't line up at a petrol station to save 10 cents on petrol for three hours. You know, these people who work petrol goes on special needs, people, idiots line up for three hours for it. That's stupid because people aren't paying their time. We're doing the same thing. Our time is like, think of the, the premium pay on the petrol is probably call it 40 bucks or 30 bucks. Our time probably isn't worth spending 20 minutes or 25 minutes to detour for 30 bucks, but we do it because because it's such an obvious ripoff. Uh, it's a really interesting psychological phenomenon. I feel differently about that. So you're looking at it from this very purest economic point of view, which is effectively the value of time, let's call it. And I'm looking at it from more of a behavioral economics point of view, which is how do I feel about not paying that premium? for the petrol. And the way I feel is like there is some happy glow that I get because whenever I do something that I think, oh, like I saved some money on that, that was smart, or the the inverse is I, I really feel terrible wasting money. And so what you're saying to me is that I should look at it from a purely economic the value of time, and get over my psychological problems with wasting money, what I would say in return, if you said that to me, is, but maybe the way that I feel psychologically about those things has delivered a whole lot of economic benefits to me in life because it's shaped how I approach a whole lot of different aspects of business. And once you start eroding little chunks of who you are and how you operate, you don't know what the unintended consequences are. I always say to my kids, I would never change anything about you because I think that all dials on personality characteristics are connected and you can't turn one dial without other dials turning as well. That's my concern about that. I think where I disagree, as you know, I'm, I'm probably, of the two of us, probably the more frugal one of the two. So it's a strange position for both of us taking here. But it's the private jet argument. Like, the, Why do wealthy people take private jets, which are often less comfortable than, call it, a Singapore airline suite? It's because it's, you're, you're buying time, essentially. You're not spending three hours in the airport on each side, or three hours on one side, half an hour on the other side. You're effectively buying time and convenience. So this is a, the, the petrol is a, is a small version of that. But- I'll certainly value my time as much as possible. And I guess the question is, how do you value your time But uh, and how much do you value your time at? But to not value time when it's probably the most finite resource we have is 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 really ignoring a really obvious fact that money is – you're not going to – no point being buried with a billion dollars because you can't take that back. So all you have is really time. And to not value time effectively and, – and this is a really tiny version of it – but to not live your life valuing time, and a more obvious version is the what you wouldn't line up for six hours at a petrol station to save twenty bucks. Why do you spend half an hour filling up a car to save twenty? Yeah, bucks? I take the point on that. But so I would say, what are you going to do with that extra time to begin with? Like I, I take your point, but like, what are you going to do with the extra money? Uh, well, no, but this, what I'm saying to you is, it's not really about the money. Like when you go and save money and buy something twenty five percent off and it saves you $15, you feel great about that. But the money is not what you feel great about. It's something deeper that you feel great about. And that is one of the reasons that you've been able to have the success that you've had. That's what I think. By the way, I don't think people are taking private jets for time to saving time. I mean, some people are, especially people that have to go to remote places like mining and, and whatever it might be. Most of the people I know that take private jets take them because like they think it's really cool to be a person that takes private jets. Like there's... These are luxury goods. 
Yeah. Oh, actually, and we talked about the LVMH podcast, never between premium and luxury, and how luxury has no, and the acquired guys, I think, nailed it. Premium, generally, there's a, a real link to value, whereas luxury, that value link's pretty much broken. It's someone just paying a premium for whatever reason they want to pay that premium for. We discussed it last week. But if you look at private jets, I think there are some people who, who just have enough money that doesn't matter. But I think for a lot of people, especially now with the, with the, called the net jets era, which is obviously Warren Buffett or Berkshire Hathaways, you've actually fra- fractional ownership of jets. And that to me is purely about how do you maximize efficiency? You don't own the jet, you're just trying to get from, and it works really well in places like the US where domestic travel is horrific or Europe where you're traveling between countries and it's short. It doesn't work in Australia because it's too far for us. It just doesn't make economic sense. But in places like the US and Europe, it makes heaps of sense. All right, I agree with that, but come on. Like there are there are a cohort of people that get genuine utility out of taking private jets. I'm not disputing that. Let's go and say I think there's some less than 50% of the people that catch private jets or less than 50% of trips is maybe a better way for me to say it. What I think is this is – I've thought a lot about this whole luxury goods conversation that we had last week and this is where I landed on it. I think that the only reason that people buy luxury goods – is because it makes them feel good about themselves. That's where I got to with luxury goods. I think that is the crux of luxury goods. Everything stems from this makes me feel good about myself. It might be because other people think that I'm successful or I'm sending this signal or I can get better mates or whatever it might be. By the way, I don't think the mates that you're going to attract with luxury goods necessarily are <laughs> the type you should be shooting for. But, <laughs> but I do think most private jet travel to me most trips are about a person feeling good that they are traveling on a private jet. But I'm sidetracking you because you're going to talk about Turo, which is yeah. So let's go. Let's go. Let's go back to car rental companies. So car rentals are bad business, right? Too capital intensive, hard to make money. Periodically, go into Chapter Eleven. And the big one on car rental, and this is where I think Turo solves even a bigger problem, is just such an inefficient. And, and you talked about it before. It's just I, I, so I rented a car about two weeks ago. I mean, in. London now, UK now. I'm just north of London, actually, a place called Hertfordshire. And I actually looked at the Turo website. They just didn't have any cars around here. It's like every time I, I, I look and every time I don't, and I get, we, we obviously know we work with rental car companies, so I get a, a pretty good price. But the, the experience is so bad. I, you go into the, I've been to this rental car company like six times. They knew when I was picking up the car and the car was there, which is, which is I guess, a, a win. But it's still a 15 to 20 minute process to, from the time I step in to the time I step out, it's 15, 20 minutes every time. They stuff around, they get the car. It's, it's always a hassle. Why can't the car be there? Why can't the car be there with a pin a pin pad saying, five, three, two, one, here's your pin, open the door, away. Like, why do they have to make it so hard? But you know, there's, there's answers to that because you skimmed over this bit, which is fun. To, you don't appreciate how lucky you were in this transaction. You started off by saying the car I booked was there. Yeah, it's you true. Know, they have no obligation to – is there any other industry where you can buy something and the seller has no obligation to give you that thing? Well, how about bundle of rights, i.e. Qantas? <laughs> That's like pretty similar to that. Well, it's it's the same thing, yep. right? It's like, it's like saying you're – it, but they're much more honest about it on the website. When you book rental cars, they say you're booking a Toyota Corolla or similar. Who decides if it's similar? <laughs> what, maybe I booked it because I wanted a Toyota Corolla. Yeah, that's that's the quid pro quo. I, I don't have an issue with that so much. You don't have an issue with that? No, because uh, it's generally I, I've never got a car that's that's that different to what I've ordered. So I don't care if it's a Corolla or a Hyundai. They're all the same. You know, they've got no obligation to give you a car at all. The real quid pro quo in the relationship with a rental company is, generally speaking, you can cancel without penalty and they can cancel without penalty. 
and you find out that they've cancelled when you turn up to the desk. Surprise, cancelled. I guess I've I've never had I've have you had, I've never had that happen in the US. It happens quite a lot. Have, oh, does it? Oh, okay. I did one once. You know, I, I reckon I've rented probably fifty or sixty in Australia. It's never happened to me yet. Have you ever met someone who's who rents cars, like who who uses rental car companies, that doesn't have a horror story about rental car companies? Well, the whole thing's just a, just a, such a terrible. It's terrible. Like they, they don't care about. It's you're right. It's probably the worst service, and it is a service really that I think I can think of in any in anything. Like there's it's, nothing worse. Yeah, and all of the things that you've just said, which is why can't they have it ready? These people are not idiots. Okay, these are these are smart business people. They've thought of that. The reason they can't have it ready is because there is just this juggle of asset allocation with their fleet pool. And it, it is, you know, as I said to you, like these are not very good businesses and they're, they're very capital intensive. And so what they have to do is juggle the assets that they have to try and maximize the returns on them. And the experience that you've had from rental car companies would be like, let's call it in the top quintile of experiences because you've got no terrible horror stories about this. People have horror stories, especially in the US, about this industry. Well, I get the I get the juggle, but if the car's there, when and my cars have been, why do I have to go to the desk and go through this ridiculous charade of signing papers? Well, and- I don't know if you're turning up. They don't know if you're turning up. How do they know if you're turning up? You can you don't have to turn up. If you don't turn up, you don't. There's no penalty. Maybe they should. Maybe they fix that. Well, they, surely they should start charging somebody at least sort of two hours before then. So at least they know that you're that you someone's paid. That's just a ridiculous system well, then but for both. That's people. a free market economy. Let's say there are ten companies, and one of them says we're going to start charging you a cancellation fee. Well, that is not a great way to drive customer acquisition when the other nine are saying you can cancel. But if, but if, for- if you said to me, Adam, you got to pay up front, but your car will be there. You don't have to deal with the twenty minutes of shit. I would do that for sure, and I reckon there's a big cohort of business people that would do that. So, I'm, I'm, I'm well, actually, I'm, I'm the view that these guys are terrible business people. Well, that's I think they Turo. Just don't have a clue about customer service. Well, Turo is even better. That's Turo. though. Turo is you pay, you make the payment. I think uh, my recollection is I had 24 hours to cancel or 12 hours or whatever it was, where it was free cancellation, which Airbnb does on some properties as well. I think it's property dependent, and then once they charge, like once that time passed i have to pay and they have to provide the car and that's the deal it's i agree with you it's much better a couple of things on Turo. one is and this is a bit the airbnb one but it's even better for cars is i think the stat is the average person only uses their car five percent of the time uh, so on that it's such an inefficiency there and some people would obviously use it more some people less but just simply it's the airbnb argument that you're not always using every the original you're not using every room in the house let's monetize some of the house and it became a bit more of a whole house thing but for Turo is even better you've got the people who have cars they may not be using it they can monetize it it's an absolute win-win so it's gonna be cheaper than a rental car business it has all that sort of corporate overheads and the other thing that that Tim was telling me, and I, I presume this is this is public, or I, I can say it is, there are entrepreneurs who are being really smart. They're they're sort of buying cars or they're they're financing cars and they're running their own Turo fleets. So they're creating their own. Well, that was my thought. <laughs> were people doing it? And there are people making, I think, a million dollars plus a year doing this, even in Australia. We're like getting to that. So they got they're running 15, 20, 30, 40 cars, and they they're basically doing a private rental car business in a much better way using this platform. They're making heaps of money and the customer's getting a great experience. So it's just, what a great win-win. So the first thing I did when I, uh, at the end of this experience when it was so good is I thought, all right, so when you take out insurance, I just paid $650. Let's say the owner kept 
500 of that. Maybe there's a 20% commission, let's say, okay? So they only kept 500. And there's probably some GST in there as well. So let's say they kept 450. And then I looked at how much of this is car cost. By the way, they had to fill the tank for the first time. It's a big tank. It's probably $100. So now we're down to 350 So they give you free petrol as well. That's right. And you, and you deliver it back full or deliver it back empty? You deliver it full. Oh, so they're not giving it no, – so it's, it's Cebras Paribus. It's coming back out. That's not costing anything. Oh, uh, that's a, oh, okay. Fair enough. That's a good way to think about it. So they got four fifty. No, I take that point. So they're four fifty, and uh, once you, once you hit me with Aladdin, I fold immediately. So you got <laughs> me on that one. Um, so so they're four fifty, and then I thought, how much does this car cost? And then I went online and had a look, and this car's like only forty k. It's a pretty nice one, not me. And so four hundred and fifty dollars for four days. So more than a hundred dollars a day for a forty thousand dollar car. That is a pretty unbelievable return. Then the two thoughts, obviously, and there are some obviously additional costs, insurance, whatever, maintenance. But the two the two keys are this. This is what I thought. Anytime you think about this, so one is obviously it depends how many days you can rent it out. Same as Airbnb, and I think Turo is not that popular in Australia yet. You probably can't rent it out that much. And then the second question I thought, which was more material to me, which is. Well, you might run the thesis, which is as it grows, you're going to grow with it and it's going to rent for more days. But I, what I would worry about is that this yield on the car is too high because I can go and buy these cars and make this great yield. Or it's a depreciating asset, so I've got to factor that in as well. But the yield is too high. And so what I wonder is as it becomes more and more popular, are you going to see price compression because people are going to accept lower and lower prices? Because to me – this yield feels high. That creates, a, I think you're right. Creates a, and like anything, things always reduce. But as you get more and more cars and prices compress, and you get more people using it, so demand then increases. I think it balance counterbalances. Ultimately, you're comparing it to rental cars. That's that's the the market is the moment rental cars. This is a tiny fraction of the market, and so you're comparing it purely. And you will be until the rental market dies, which eventually it will. Turo or something like I think Turo's got a big lead, and I think will be the Airbnb. But so let's assume Turo is the Airbnb of the industry. That as you said in the uh, up front, this will kill rental cars for sure. It's better in every way. It's cheaper. The customer experience is better. You're cutting out that corporate fat. And rental car companies are just disgusting. Like they're often private equity owned, so they've got no link to founder sort of ownership. So they've lost all that. Uh, so the sooner that industry dies, the better. And obviously, our good friends who supply electric escapes are, are great. But otherwise, the sooner that industry dies, the, the better. And the sooner Turo comes, and and or Turo like businesses come, it's just I think it's better for everyone. And maybe maybe the hurts of this world will will transition to a Turo like model potentially somehow, and become a platform. The interesting thing about Airbnb is that as it became more and more popular, and more properties came onto it, and you started getting professional organizations, both managing individual properties and starting to own large groups of properties that they put on Airbnb, you didn't see price compression. Actually, pricing is much higher today, much higher. Like I do use Airbnb in particular markets. Actually, I think I use it less now that there are more properties on it and it's more popular than I did (laughs) 10 years ago. Uh, it's less appealing to me. We can do an episode on Airbnb because I think it's fascinating. And obviously, we we basically compete with Airbnb Luxury Escape. So disclose my conflict there. But I stayed in Airbnb three days ago in London, literally in the heart of Soho. So I booked it about a year ago. And it was a fantastic experience. I, I got a two-bedroom. So a two-bedroom in the hardest, like literally smack bang opposite, if you know where Ms. Non is there. So around the corner from Carnaby Street. So amazing location. Uh, I was like 20 meters from Ms. Non. And London was, uh, we talked about it last week, London is so busy now. It's busy. It's, you can barely walk down the 
sidewalk at eight o'clock at night there. It's, it's insane. So it's very city dependent. Like La- London is a great city for Airbnb. Sydney actually is a really good city for Airbnb as well. New York is dreadful. Well, they don't um, allow it. In d- well, so they do it secretly. It's dreadful. But the Gold Coast is fantastic. Now, I don't want to take no. business away from your Langham offers, but actually <laughs> the Gold Coast I've had fairly consistently um, strong experiences. So anyway, we'll talk about Airbnb another time, but my point is more like if Tura goes the way of Airbnb, it will be interesting because my instinct would be that there's going to be price compression with competition, but your counter-argument, there's these two counter-arguments. One is their competition is rental cars, so unless you see price compression with rental cars, they'll still maintain this substantial discount to the rental car, which will probably be enough to keep customers coming. And the second thing is that Airbnb didn't have price compression. So who knows how, well, maybe you'll see nicer and nicer cars on Turo. I want to say one last thing about this before we go, because we got to mention, do you know Chris Bailey? I don't. So Chris Bailey, I met him when he was at Google. I actually met him through Ari Klinger, as it happens. He is the co-founder and chief customer solutions officer at Cover Genius. So the way I first came across this business is Chris told me about it and it was a business where effectively, instead of paying the car rental company for the insurance waiver to reduce the excess, you just accepted the excess with the rental company. You went to Cover Genius and paid them and they effectively secondarily insured your excess. And it was so much cheaper, so much cheaper. Now, obviously, as I said to you, Platinum credit cards largely provide excess insurance now. But I remember when he first started this business, I thought, I can't work out if this is a business or a feature, but whatever it is. Well, it's completely, the business completely changed now. I know, it's a different business now, but that's how he started. That's how he started. what, What do you use them for? Yeah, so Cover Genius now, so we use it basically as a platform. It's basically a smart UX UI layout that sits between us and they had they work with like the Lloyds and those kind of insurers across the world. So they basically act as a middle a middle layer to provide best pricing for our customers. So we, we can dynamically adjust pricing. They, they they essentially dynamically adjust pricing based on a number of different factors. So it's a really good product now. It's very different to yeah, they did start in that car insurance excess thing, but it's complete and I think they're I think they're looking to list at some point. Uh, and they're obviously global business. Oh, their business is – they raise money at hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars valuation. Like they're doing really well. Yeah, it's great. And the founder's a great guy. And I find them really good. Uh, and there's a lot of money in insurance, obviously, in travel insurance. Not so much – well, less so for the retailer now, but for the travel insurance provider, they make – that's a great businesses. Uh, I just want to say, I've been in London and you're half a chair for the last week. And I talked about how busy London is. Uh, I actually saw – were you, you a fan of Back to the Future? Of course. It's like one of my favorite ever movies. I saw Back to the Future, the musical. My wife bought it for me for my birthday and we obviously took the kids. And I wasn't expecting much because obviously it's a tra- big transition to go from Back to the Future, the movie to the musical. Uh, but it was it was really good. It was uh, They did a better job than I've ever, ever seen anybody done on sets. Uh, it was The effects are really good. Uh, it was actually actually. A, pretty decent songs and the, the guy who played the doc was amazing the guy who played marty i thought was really good it was just really good so if you next time you're in london shout out to back to the future of the music i didn't i wasn't expecting much but my theater review uh was really good it was a great and the, the crowd we talked about we talked about us and uk people a couple of weeks ago how they're just more enthusiastic you go to australia and i got find theater sh- crowds in australia are pretty no one ever gives standing ovations nobody ever gets that into it that much in the uk they're dancing in the aisles they're, they're all giving standing ovations that here in this multiple times they clapped so like you know when marty's dad punches biff 
in the movie. Yeah. Like they had that scene and, that, and the audience all claps. And it's, really? <laughs> I just really like UK audiences. They're just so much more into it than cynical Australian audiences. I find um, standing ovations so awkward. Like there are a number of times that in my life – that I felt that someone really deserved a standing ovation, and I was oh, I felt completely compelled to give them a standing ovation. I can count I can count that on one hand. The number of standing ovations I've given, I couldn't count on all of my hands and <laughs> my fingers and toes. Yeah, and yeah. so every like, one that is not one of the ones that I was desperate to give was. Oh, do you know I can just stay <laughs> sitting down? How long can I do it for? And like you know, like. 10 seconds, but if they're still standing and clapping and I've been sitting for 10 seconds, I can't stay sitting. I've got to You're stand up. Australian, like, that's your problem. It's socially too yeah, inappropriate exactly. to keep sitting, right? Oh, you can't because, sit. That's a snub. It's a massive snub. No, that's the thing. Isn't it crazy? So I'm clapping wholeheartedly, okay? And probably <laughs> it's possible. It's possible I don't even think they deserve the clap that I'm giving them, but I'm giving them a wholehearted clap. So like your hands are, hands are hurting type clap, like you're actually feeling the oh, skin burn. I'm giving it to them, right? <laughs> and I don't even believe it. And but I'm putting everything into it. And then the, because the people around me have decided it will make their experience better to have given a standing ovation, suddenly, if I don't stand up, my wholehearted clapping looks like a snub. Oh, you're basically, I mean, you're basically chucking a tomato. Fair? It's the equivalent of. How, you know. how is that fair? How is that fair? Like if they feel they want to give a standing ovation, well, that's their business. I didn't think it was that good, but that's fine. Why does it mean that I have to give it? But I do. I do. Well, it's a nice thing to do. It's oh, that's a nice thing. To do. <laughs> okay, uh, you know, I paid for the show. Like, <laughs> no one's giving me free tickets. It, uh, anyway, the show was really good. People gave. This was actually a bit of one of those awkward, sort of three quarter or even half standing ovation. So half people gave a standing ovation, half didn't. But there was in Australia, I find you maybe get like one percent. There's like one dude who gives a standing, which is just super awkward. But there's one dude standing up giving a standing ovation. Like you need to have at least half. I don't. Ovation. I've never had the experience of like. 10% giving a standing ovation. I think, oh, really? yeah, it's like a contagion, a standing ovation. Like, because everyone in Australia feels awkward if they're not standing. Like, <laughs> I find in Australia people, like, you get one dude standing and nobody else does, and this is one dude just clapping voraciously. I've never, well, one person, I don't know what, one person standing and clapping is a weird thing, but like 10% go, and then the other 90% are looking and they're just thinking, those bastards, sit down. I do not <laughs> want to stand up. But then they're all up. The other 90% are up. Within 10 seconds, everyone's up. And then the actors on stage, what are they taking from that? They're like, we just gave the best show of anyone's life. But 90% are like, I wish I didn't have to stand up. That is what's actually going on, by the we way. We should actually ask. And I, reckon that, I reckon they'd like some sort of ovation. Of course they would like a standing ovation. When I'm walking down the street, I want an ovation, okay? But I don't get it. So because, But if, yeah, I don't deserve it. We'll, we'll be doing a live version of this at some point. Yes. Oh, it's, I'm very encouraged to hear you say that. It's taken me until, what, the end of the year to convince you of that. I think, yes, absolutely we will. And- what do I think about a standing? I don't want anyone to give us a standing ovation unless they really think we deserve it. I, I, I'm demanding it. I hope for you somebody somebody needs to give us a standing ovation. Or assuming the show isn't terrible, if it's a terrible show. That's your bar for a standing ovation. If it's not terrible, it's a standing ovation. <laughs> What's that? If it's not a one, it's a ten. That is that is your personality. I will <laughs> you give know, you that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Fair <laughs> enough. Surprised. Case closed. You are consistent, if nothing else. <laughs> I agree with that. Anyway, on to just a couple of quick things. I want to know. I did a couple of. Have you been to JD? Do you know much about JD Sports in the UK? Yes, it's in Australia. JD Sports. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's sort of two big sort of rebel type category killers for sports. So JD Sports, and, and both actually owned by billionaires now. So Mike Ashley owns Sports Direct. He's worth about five point seven billion pounds. 
and I did a bit of research on JD Sports, which is a really interesting business, founded by a couple of Liverpudlian rag traders uh, in the 30s, I think. This whole segment, uh, this whole talk is so that you could say Liverpudlian. <laughs> you should just come clean on that. <laughs> I do love the word Liverpudlian. Anyway. Uh, I know, I could tell as you said it. The Rubin family, and I think the son of the founder still runs it. He's, I think he's in the 80s. He's worth about $6 billion. Uh, so this is done pretty, and they, they, they were the first, they did the Reebok in the 80s. They brought Reebok, they bought into Reebok. Remember Reebok was massive yeah, in the yeah. 80s. That yep. was, these guys made all this money. I see. And then they had a tough period and it's owned by that whole, it's a bit confusing, but anyway, it's a, obviously a, a very well run business, but as a customer experience, it was the worst retail customer experience I've almost ever had. So I wasn't, partly my own stupidity and we listened to our son who wanted to go to JD, but we were walking down Oxford Street at sort of four o'clock, so the PM, the worst possible time to shop at one of these shops. This is in the week after Christmas. Why is it the worst time? Just because there's like a million people in the shop. You could retail in the UK, I'll get to this in a second more, but retail is booming here. You can't walk in these shops. It's just insane. So I'm in this shop to get, to try on a pair of shoes, you got to go to a guy and there's like 20 people. It's like the old school Queen Victoria market style. <laughs> go and sort of, oh, give me a size eight and this. And he, he then puts in his iPad, somebody else delivers the shoe. You then try, you can sort of try it on, but you don't really have much of a chance to try it on. They then deliver it to the till. So you got to do this. You basically don't, because I don't want people stealing it, I imagine. So, the, the, and, but you're waiting for like 10 minutes at each, each step in the, so to get, we got, I got a pair of shoes. I just needed my, my shoes, literally it's wet here and my shoes, because I obviously wear shoes till they evaporate. These shoes are basically evaporated. The sole had evaporated. So I was getting, my foot was getting wet. So I had to buy a new pair of Converse shoes. So it was, I had to buy that out of necessity. My son wanted to buy another pair of overpriced Air Jordans or, or not overpriced Air Jordans, whatever. So we, we needed to buy three pairs of shoes. It took me like an hour and a half. I should have been in and out. And fun. This, this whole process was disastrous. Yet this company's doing pretty well nonetheless. And there were people lining up 20 DPR. That was a terrible retail experience. Then I went to- That's interesting. Been to well, let's just be clear though. You're happy for this founder or this owner to be worth $6 billion in retail because he's not selling luxury goods. <laughs> well, I'm not happy. I'm disappointed this guy's made so much money because this is a terrible experience. But he's obviously got other businesses. There's a bunch of other, but this is like one of his many businesses and he's done very well. You know, there is this whole category of retail called e-commerce where you don't have to go into <laughs> shops. So I'm just want to point which that should, out to you. Which is what I usually do, but I had a, I had a, an evaporated sole. My foot was getting wet. So I didn't right. have hands to order on Amazon even. So I usually, I, my previous pair of Converse, I think Chuck Taylor's or whatever, that was bought off of Catch or Amazon or whatever. Uh, but I was in the UK, I just couldn't got it. So I had to go into the store and I hated it. But So that was a dis- disgusting experience. And then the next day I went to Hamley's, you know, the biggest toy store in the world that yep. it's on Regent Street. There's one I in know. New York, I think FAA Schwartz is the New York one. Hamley's, who do you reckon owns Hamley's, by the way? I've got no idea. It's, it's just like a 1786 store toy store. It's owned yep. by Reliance. Is it the one with the toy soldiers out the front? Yes. It's a, do, you know, do you know who Reliance is? It's the Indian conglomerate. Um, yes, of course. They own everything. They have an airline. They have they have everything. So it's owned by Reliance, which is the big, um, massive Indian conglomerate. It's owned by Mukesh Ambani. I think he's worth like hundreds of billions of dollars or $100 billion or whatever he's worth. Uh, but anyway, Reliance re- re- is this massive conglomerate. Somehow ended up owning this 200-year-old toy store. Uh, but So this is a very old toy store. Remember I talked about the JD experience, which is just horrendous. This store was... It was equally as busy as, as JD, but and there was people everywhere. I took a video for you. It was people everywhere. Maybe we'll put the video on the on the LinkedIn page potentially. Uh, I haven't seen a, a toy store this busy. You think retail's dead and, and in-person retail's dead. It's certainly not based on JD and Hamleys. But the experience difference from Hamleys JD was so diametrically opposite. So they have all these people giving like free samples and sh- they say people throwing 
people using a drone and letting kids play with toys. And the pe- they're all super fun, like sort of 25-year-old sort of kids who are really almost like the Disney style engaged. It's just such an unbelievable experience despite being super, super busy. And it's a business that clearly deeply understands customers and what makes customers buy and the customer experience. It was incredible. I've always found that store to be a very happy store. Like there's a lot of happiness exuding from like, all through that store. So you know what it reminds me of? Do you remember the – I don't remember, but, you know, there's this very old movie with Tom Hanks called Big. Oh, I love Big. And, you know, he dances on that keyboard. Yeah, on the keyboard. Yeah. That's what it reminds me of. That's the yeah. vibe of that store. 100%. 100%. So I have all those samples. And my, my son – so my kids – we let the kids buy a sort of toy each. And my son, I think, was spending his own. Do you ever use Spriggy? Was your kids too old for Spriggy or do you ever use – I don't know like what that is. business. Talk about, again, it's basically an episode where kids have a debit card and you give them micro payments for doing stuff. So they read a book, you get a dollar. You under the dishwasher, you get a dollar. That kind of stuff. It's um, Australian owned. It's, it's a, really good. It's, a, it's an app to facilitate bribing children basically. is what you're it's saying. Just pocket, it's, it's, it's a pocket money app basically, but it's 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 just a really good. Uh, but anyway, I'll talk about it in another episode because I think it's worth a chat, a deeper dive. Well, it's not pocket money. Pocket money is do your chores, get money, or probably in this day and age, do nothing and get money. Yeah, but this is, well, I'll incent you for particular things that I want you to do. But it's better because you're, you're showing the value of work. So you do this work, I'll reward you for doing this this work as opposed to I'm going to give you random 20 bucks because the time's elapsed. Is it Australian? It's Australian. A really good founder. I'd even love to get him on the pod maybe. He's, he's a really impressive founder. And a- All right. Well, I, we'll, we'll argue about whether it's bribery or whether it's a good incentive model. We'll get, he, we'll get him. He can defend himself. Yeah, well, I'll, and I'll defend it. I, you know, I love using it, and it's really great. And this is a great example because when my son's spending his own spriggy money, he's super frugal. If he's spending our money, he doesn't, he doesn't care because why would he? But if he's spending his own money, and so he's spending his own money here, and he was, he was I think he got some Pokemon, wanted to get some Pokemon. Anyway, went to the, the counter. There's this, you remember in Home Alone 2, which we just watched again, there was that old guy who runs the toy store and he gives the turtle doves. There was a guy a bit like that. Anyway, so for those who watch Home Alone 2, which is – I should refer to Home Alone 1. But those who watch Home Alone 2, there's this, this really nice guy who runs the toy stores. Called, it's based on FAO Schwartz, so called Duncan's Toy Chest or something. So it was this guy at the counter in Hamleys, which is obviously owned by a massive conglomerate. And my son's sort of umming and ahhing, should I buy this? And he's really patient with him, and he's explaining why I should buy this. And eventually my son sort of chose something, and he was – and this guy – on the basis of being so impressed by my son's sort of frugality or, or whatever it was, gave him this extra sort of double-decker toy bus. So you can imagine the really? – I don't know. This would have cost them – they make it all – they, they have the direct relationship with China, yeah. obviously. They make it themselves. It would have cost them like a buck or two. And maybe – What a great experience. But what a, like, where are we going to go next time we come back to you? Of course we're going to go back. Yeah. And of course we're going to spend $200 without question because this guy was such a brilliant uh, brilliant operator. And So this is – so I believe well, – I'm just going to um, just go off on a tangent about – direct-to-consumer e-commerce, but it will be brief. But I constantly tell founders it is possible to turn customer experience into a differentiated feature of the offering. And what you've just talked about is exactly that. It is a wow moment for the customer. And, you know, all right, most customers don't have podcasts where they can go and share this story, but they all have people that they can tell this story to. And if we look at it cynically, we say this is great for reduction of customer acquisition cost, right? Like it's a cack down word of mouth. The thing is that the best businesses do not look at it in as mercenary terms as CAC reduction. They basically say what we are here to do is just wow the customer. That is what's important to us. 
And I think that is really what this store does very, very well. I totally agree with you. Absolutely. Across, and that was just, I guess, it helps when you've got massive margins as well. So it's harder on a small margin business. But have you heard the Chewy story? Did I ever talk to you about the Chewy story on the show? I can't remember. If we, I don't think we have. No, I know the, I know the business, obviously. So Chewy's... I think it's Ryan Cohen. It's Chewy's like the it's like the the food the pet food delivery business in the states. There's this f- fantastic um, social media um, post that there was someone sent Chewy. Obviously, they had, like you get basically subscription dog food or whatever it is, and someone sent Chewy a message saying, "Oh, my dog's died. Oh, yes, Can I please get a yes. cancel the subscription." Um, and they may have been asking for. I'm not. I'm not sure if they're asking for a refund or not. Maybe they were, but. Let's just show, I don't think they were. They just said, cancel my subscription. The, and the person who was working at Chewy sent them a message back saying, no, no, I've canceled your subscription and I've refunded you the money that you've, you've paid. They also sent this person some flowers and a card saying, I'm so sorry to hear about your dog, Toto, passing, your poodle, your pet poodle, Toto, passing away. Like how? And obviously this person posted on social and they got a huge benefit from it, but uh, that obviously wasn't the intent. Uh, but that's just an unbelievable customer first mentality that, I haven't heard an example like that, a better example than that. There's a nice business in Australia, by the way, that um, is a dog food subscription business called Scratch, started by a guy called Mike Halligan. And it's a really nice guy. And he sells this very premium dog food and um, grows completely organically, totally bootstrapped, just loves what he does. And it, I think there is something very similar albeit on a much smaller scale, to the way Chewy approaches the world as to the way Mike does it at Scratch. I've, been, I've always been very impressed with his level of passion for what he's doing. Yeah. And of course, the Chewy founder was monumental behind the GameStop meme craze. He was the, he was the chair, exec chair of GameStop. I think he still is. So uh, I think he I think, I think he quit. I no, he's know. still there. I'm pretty sure oh, he's still there. Uh, uh, we're getting to the end of the episode, but I know you got to uh, – I think you want to talk about Adore Beauty, which is really interesting Australian business that's – that's had a, a takeover offer, I think, recently. After it's obviously listed a couple of years ago, I had a, a sort of a torrid time with listing, and, and Kate, Kate, the founder, who we both know, um, stepped aside, uh, and now it's obviously run by it was run by Tanil, who's a, who was a friend of mine, who's an incredible CEO, and she's moved on. It's now run by uh, Tamalin, who, who's another friend of mine. Uh, but what, tell me your door story. Yeah, so uh, I want to tell you, people communicate to me that one of the things that they like most that we do on this podcast is kind of breaking down the way that a business works, especially the economics of businesses. And so I wanted to tell you a story with Adore Beauty and relate it back to what's going on with that business at the moment. Maybe I'll preface all of this by saying, I think the Fin Review in particular has been much too hard on Kate Morris with all these accusations that, you know, she because the share price has done terribly, obviously, but that she took the money from her customers and women's empowerment and then they all lost tons of money. I actually think that there was nothing but good intentions to be candid with you totally at the time of the IPO of this business and, you know, it was it was just one of those COVID-type things that happened. So that's my preface. And so I say that preface because one is I think it's unfair some of the negative criticism or the criticism that, she, that she's received. I think some of it's probably is justified. When you float a business and it drops 90%, you're going to cop a bit of uh, a pasting. I think there's a bit of sexism in there uh, for sure. And some schadenfreude because she took 90 mil or something off the table and people are like- Well, that's, that's, that's a bit of the problem. I think if she'd, she'd gone down with the ship, there wouldn't be an, an issue. But when you do take money off, it's a bit unsafe. Like, I don't blame her because other people have done it. Like she's not. The, I think she gets an unfair blame way more than others. But- there is probably some justice. She did what 
definitely nobody that IPO'd this business in my understanding of it expected this outcome from the business. They didn't do it saying, we know that it's going to crash. You might have a different take on that, but that's my my take on it. I'm not sure about crash. They must have known that it was overpriced. I remember I spoke to people in there at the time and- I reckon they knew it was a good – like, she's being pushed by the private equity guy, the Quadrant guys, who – nobody knows how to oversell a business like the Quadrant guy. So, she, I don't know if she, it was even her choice. She may have been pushed in by Quadrant, who who um, got the money and, and sort of ran. But If someone says that you can go and take 70 to $90 million, well, I don't know what she got, something in that vicinity, for a business that the year before, like, the entire business was basically worth that much or two years earlier, you know, I mean, it's you're crazy not to take – anyway, I don't want to get too caught up in this. Like, yeah, but – uh, I, I, I just want to talk about this for a second because we looked at you've, – you've, obviously, you're a public company chair and I, I, I've we looked at listing our business a couple of times and I was regularly arguing with the bankers and other people that I don't want to oversell the business because ultimately we're a, we want to be a long-term holder of the business and we want to get a fair price for exiting shareholders and a fair price – and obviously, we never got to the listing so we ended up pulling it partially because of this reason. But there was no way I was going to go in front of investors and oversell a business on what I thought it was worth. If I thought it was worth $100 bucks or $200 million, there's no way I was going to ask for $400 million because uh, I don't want to disappoint investors who ideally want to have a long-term partnership with. You know more about this than me, but I, I just don't understand why anybody would want to sell a business for more than – you want to have a margin of safety event. You want to be able to sell – if I sell it for slightly less than probably what it's worth. The, ma- the main criticism that people make that is – I wouldn't say it's genuine criticism. I'd say take all the schadenfreude and all of that jealousy and sexism and put that to one side. Like what do I think is the closest to legitimate criticism? It's that her and Justin Ryan, who was the guy at Quadrant, that did this transaction, it was the chairman, I think, of the business. They basically made their money, left the business to other people, and although Kate is still a director, I'll point that out, and like being a director of a company is not without its risks, so she hasn't totally ridden off into the sunset, but, you know, they've moved on to other things, whereas like there are some – I wouldn't. I don't think there are investors now that are still wearing the pain, and her and um, her partner have still got – it's 10 million shares each. So they still control a substantial, probably more. But I think that that was like the main criticism that I thought fair people were making. My view is this. There's nothing that she did in my view that was wrong. It, the optics of it maybe were not fantastic. I, I, sorry, I, I don't think it was wrong. I think it was unwise. I don't think it was wrong because ultimately people are like, – Investors know. Investors had the same information that she had. She didn't have any insight. There wasn't. There was any fraud or anything like that. She, she just happened to sell it at a really good time. It definitely wasn't wrong at all. I'm not. I would never say that for a second. I just think it was unwise. So it's a different nuance there. I know one big investment bank that wouldn't agree to the price that um, another investment bank did agree with. Well, Macquarie. I'm sure Macquarie knocked. May have knocked it back. I, I, there was. Maybe they, I can't remember. Well, I can't but, share who, exactly who I know that yeah. knocked it back, but yeah. like I know it did get knocked back. And ultimately, I forgot who I thought a bank, Bank of America did the IPO. I can't remember who did the IPO in the end. I might just be tarring them without knowing. But when I when I did a comparison of, of Lux's value to Adore, so we had it was during COVID. But if I if I put our metrics on their multiple, it was like we got to like a three billion dollar valuation for us. There was no way on earth I would have sold shares in us for three. And I, when we, we did a small round in, in the COVID and, and we got a fraction of that valuation because I wasn't comfortable selling for more than what we thought the business is worth. So so I think it was unwise. Um, I don't think it was uh, illegitimate in any way. So the joint lead managers were Morgan Stanley and UBS. I should correct that. So that's who did it. So anyway, this, that's a whole aside in my view. This is I want to tell you my experience, okay? So 
as you know, I don't buy many luxury goods, but I, I and I buy, but I do buy something that's expensive. I think we've spoken about this before that I call a premium good, which is quite expensive body wash. I've run the whole. I've got very sensitive skin. <laughs> I feel ridiculous <laughs> saying that. Why does that surprise me? No, but I do. And so basically, I really feel the benefit of like the better ingredients. And so I've run well, the whole gamut. Use? No, which so I've is- gone all the way up to Byredo, which is insanely expensive to be honest. So how much with do you, you pay for how much well, do you pay for your body wash? Well, the would be like three hundred mils of Byredo would be ninety five dollars or something. So Jesus, yeah, yeah, I know. And so, but now I've come back down to Aesop. That's where I've rest. Oh, Aesop's very good. Yeah, and I like I don't mind molten brown either. I've just uh, I don't like the way it dispenses. Anyway, it's a very detailed conversation about body wash, which I didn't want to have. But um, so I so I buy Aesop. So I just this, I just want to tell my process that I just went through two days ago. I need more Aesop. Go online, search Aesop on Google, see where it's cheapest. It's basically a similar price everywhere. So I go to Adore Beauty generally because they have this. Um, membership rewards club that doesn't cost any money i've told you how i feel about no sunk cost clubs but and so i and one of the things they provide is free delivery for 65 dollars or more i think it does very well for them that loyalty well you can make your decision after i tell you this story so 65 dollars, and this thing is uh 49 or something or it might, it might be 45 whatever it is that's why i go there so i go there and then i find this other item that's on sale there, which is like a diffuser, you know, like a scent diffuser. And it was down from like $40 to $30 or something like that. And I added that to my basket as well. And I got my basket up to $90. I'm going to come back to that. Okay. But let's for a second, think about some margins on what's going on here. Okay. Because this is going to lead to broader conversation on Adore Beauty and the offer that the takeover offer they got. So, the 59, the, the average margin that they have, the average gross margin of Adore Beauty is about a third. Yep. Okay. So I'm surprised that high. The $59 bottle of, of this Aesop, it's actually, it actually fell slightly year on year. So the $59 bottle of Aesop, that's GST. Okay. So that's really maybe $55. And let's say they kept to keep a third of that. And so they're going to roughly keep what? $18 or whatever it is, yeah? That's going to be their gross profit on that, $18. And this $40 diffuser, let's say that's $37, and they keep a third of that, might be $12, let's call it, because then we can round it out to $30 of gross profit on this, okay? Now we start taking some things off. That's the gross margin that they've just made, assuming a third on full price of both. So now let's work out, where that goes so you got $30 well I clicked on some ads to go to Adore so there could be $5 of clicks that I've chewed down to go to the store so now we're down to $25 but even let's say I'm going to use I'm going to be generous I'm going to say let's say it's a $3 click one click $27 now they're giving me free postage there's also bank fees as well in there oh we're going to get to that oh by the way their merchant fees are two and a half percent Bank and merchant fees in their annual report were two and a half percent. It's strangely high. You see my theme about merchant fees? Consistently high in all of these companies that are reporting. That doesn't make sense. They're, they're an Australian business. Doesn't actually make I sense. Know. They're so high. Bank and merchant fees, but there can't be many bank fees. No, nah, it's all the same. Are, it's all the same. It's I don't a merchant know, fee. Two and a half percent. I find this consistent theme amongst all these retailers 
of these high merchant fees relative to what I'm paying in in the businesses I'm involved in. Anyway, let's come back to that. Yeah, so we're going to lose $3 off the 30. So now we're down to 27. Free postage. So the postage of this stuff, yeah. I can tell you, I don't yeah. think it's less than 10. Yeah. Well, let's say Easy. 7. Okay? Nah, it's 10. It's 10. But even let's say down to 20. You'll see where I'm going with this, okay? 20. So merchant fees are 2.5% of the $90 basket. Yeah. So let's just call it let's just call it two dollars and keep it round. Now we're at eighteen dollars. Yep. Okay, so we're keeping eighteen dollars of a ninety dollar transaction, a bit less than ninety because let's call it an eighty dollar transaction. Let's say twenty to twenty five contrib- percent contribution margin before the fixed costs. Okay, and I'm being kind of a bit generous with that. I wouldn't want to be involved in a business personally with 20 to 25% contribution margins. That's not the businesses that I'm interested in being involved in retail. It's much too low for me. I think that you could make some money out of a business like that on volume, but you want to tell you- There are plenty of businesses that not everybody's, not everybody's Louis Vuitton, so- well, We don't have to be Louis Vuitton. Like we can, like I, I'm much more happy, I'm much happier towards 40% contribution margins in the business. But if you're a retailer, if you're a retailer selling other people's stuff, which I know you hate, it's pretty, like I think if they are at 20% contribution, that's actually fine. I'm, I've got I've got no huge issue. Well, we'll get back to selling other people's stuff and we'll get back to they're not at 20% because there's a bit of this story that I haven't told you. We're at $18 of contribution profit. But you might say, dear, why did you add the diffuser to your order if you just went on there to buy an Aesop body wash? And the answer would be because inside my special club membership that I didn't pay for, <laughs> pardon me, that I didn't pay for, was a spend 90, save 20 voucher. And so all of a sudden, the $18 of contribution profit that they made on me drops to minus $2 of contribution profit. Not only does it not cover any of their fixed costs, it actually eats $2 of profits for them. Could I just say that? But not everybody, some people might spend 300 bucks there. I presume they have a, I presume a door aren't. Like they're pretty smart people. Some pretty smart people in there. They'd be seeing a cross section of spenders. So we give, we'll give a hundred dollar credit out sometimes for various different things. Some people spend a hundred bucks. Some people spend five thousand. So it kind of evens out across the across the. Yes, mix. that's fine. But the story is not over. I take that point on board. Okay, but uh, let me now say the following things. What they most importantly, in a sense, that twenty dollar voucher was completely unnecessary to get me to purchase and a terrible idea because I would have purchased from a door at least a dozen times. And like, I'm a repeat customer. If you can't make money out of me at purchase 12, when are you ever going to make money out of me? And so I think that was hugely problematic and a big mistake. And let me tell you about this business more broadly. This business more broadly delivered $180 million of revenue last financial year. They were down a few percent on the year before, but maybe that's not that surprising. On that $180 million of revenue, I said they had like a 33% gross margin. The amount of EBITDA they generated was, I think it was about 2 mil or a bit less than 2 mil, which is, I think, terrible in itself. But even worse than that, is they go and capitalize $2 million of development expenses, building apps or whatever, which I'm totally opposed to in a retail business. And so really, this is a profitless business that makes no operating free cash flow. In fact, it's a negative if you include the cost of the developers that they're capitalizing on $180 million of revenue. Now, someone comes along and says, 
in November, we will pay $1.25 to $1.30 for this business. Who was that? I can't actually remember. It was THG Group on the London Stock Exchange. So I hadn't come across them before. Oh, the hut. It's the hut group. They're a big business. And so they said they're going to pay $1.25 to $1.30. We know this because there was a media report of it and Adore Beauty put out a response to the media article on the 27th of November that basically said, we got this non-binding conditional in Dino, the usual NBIO, non-binding indicative offer, to acquire 100% of the shares in the company via a scheme of arrangement for $1.25 to $1.30. And there were conditions. And basically, we rejected it because we think it undervalues the business. There are circa 100 million shares on issue in this company. So there's, I think it's 90 mil, but let's just use 100. So this is a $125 to $130 million valuation for a profitless business doing $180 million of revenue, went backwards year on year. And you might say, well, hang on a second. It's three-year growth was 14% compound growth, because let's not do one year. Revenue growth, okay? Because I think this business is more likely, when I do the calculations, to be something like a 10% contribution margin business, which means every dollar that they generate, they keep 10 cents before having to pay their fixed costs. Which is not, not, not terrible for a platform e-commerce business. Not terrible. Not terrible. But so far they are generating no profit with that yeah. 10% contribution margin. Yeah. And they're not off scale. 100, $130 million. And you might say, well, they can grow into it because their growth rate was 14.5% compounding for the last three years, except they just released an update of tr- for trading this year, and it shows that their growth this year was between 5 and 6% year on year. So it's not much of a grower. And so what you've got here is a business – selling other people's stuff with $180 million, growing at 5 or 6% having gone backwards the year before, that just cannot generate any cash or profitability. And they're knocking back a $130 million <laughs> offer. Now, yeah. the, the share price now is $1.40, of course, because yeah. you know, like all of the arbitrage funds are coming in now to buy pieces of it. Between Quadrant and the two founders, they still control half the company. So they can, the destiny of this company is largely in their hands. They could get a scheme of arrangement over the line almost by themselves, not quite, because you've got to get 75 75. provided the conditions that they're offered are not different to the conditions other people, which they won't be. Believe me, like they're going to want to sell out the rest of their shares. I, I just look at this business and I think, what would I pay for this business on the private market and how... What is the outcome ever going to be for this business where it starts generating a material amount of money? Because as a last sentence, and then you should give me your thoughts on all of this, and I know you know, you basically know all of the people that have run this business, but you know, if you're at zero, $180 million for zero, and you're making 10% contribution margin, and let's say I'm going to keep your fixed costs completely flat, not realistic, but I'm going to keep them totally flat. So every incremental dollar the contribution profit is all going to go to net profit. That means every extra $1 you make, 10 cents, we're just going to put that straight to profit. For a $130 million business, you would say, come on, you want at least $13 million of at least profit before tax. I would like profit after tax, okay? Like 10 times PE, but at least profit before tax, maybe 14, 15 times price to earnings. This business, on what I take as their 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 margins would need to generate an additional $130 million of revenue 
to reach a point where a $130 million valuation was 10 times profit before tax. I just don't see it happening. I just don't see it happening. Well, I think the biggest problem with it, there's a couple of big problems. One is the only way you could almost justify is if it had been really badly mismanaged. So sometimes you've got a business that's just, just been wasting cash. And this is the private equity call it playbook. You, there's a badly managed public business kind of floundered with absent CEO, absent corporate CEOs. There maybe is like in that situation, it can be a, a good buy. I think the problem is you had Kate who was a really – really good founder. Then you had Tanil, who's an absolute superstar. She's now running IDP Educate, which is like a $10 billion business. So she's Not just Kate. I just want to correct you. So Kate, I agree. Kate with Quadrant. And James, yeah. And Quadrant, yeah. yeah. Um, so you had Kate, who's an excellent founder. You had Tanil, who's an absolute superstar, running a multi, multi-billion, one of the best CEOs in the country. And I know Tanil very well. And she's up there with one of the most impressive managers I've ever seen. Uh, ironically, I was in a YPO group with Tanil and uh, Preet, who was running ASOP. So you talked about your ASOP buying off a door. So and that and Preet's probably as good an executive. So two of the best executives in the country in my YPO. So I was super lucky uh, in that regard. But uh, both incredibly good. So and then Tamlin, who runs it now, is a really shrewd operator who had a very strong exit for a PE sale recently. So you've had really good management. So you can. Cross the bad management box. So it's not that. So you're not going to get better managers than these guys, I think. I don't think you're going to get in Australia better people to run it than these guys. You know this quote by Warren Buffett, which is when a manager with a reputation for brilliance yeah. tackles a business with a reputation for bad economics, the reputation of the business remains intact. That's basically what happened to Tanil, in my view. Uh, and Tanil, but the good story is Tanil's now running a very big business and doing shows. I know. Well, so. But that was her experience with the door. 100%. I think she probably just chose maybe bad. I haven't ever spoken to her about this, but I presume she just maybe chose badly. But So you've got to tick that off. So you had really good management. I think the biggest problem is this is they're competing against what is it, Strawberry, Strawberry Net and Amazon and all this sort of stuff that you're competing against low profit businesses so you just got no competitive advantage at all like other than a kind of okay brand you get the tim tam and that kind I of stuff. I, I, I mean, i'm not sure that and you're competing against mecca as well and sephora in a way because they're not and these are in, so you got sephora owned by lvmh a good luck competing against bernard you got Me- mecca who's run by joe and peter unbelievable operators and a great business one of the best businesses in australia and we'll talk about that in a future episode so you're competing against these really really good businesses yeah and, and they just got no competitive so I, I, what do i value the business at pretty close to zero because uh, you've had incredible operators not being able to make money. So how is this ever going to make money? Yeah, and so, you know, for, by the way, just another little whiny thing. Yeah, you get the Tim Tam, which is just more margin erosion as far as I'm I'm concerned. Like, who cares about the Tim Tam yeah. that comes in? it? Like, it's not special. Yeah. I would much rather they spent the Tim Tam money on a nicer box. All I got was this plain boring box with some, you know, packaging inside and there was no magic of the brand like there used to be some magic in the brand and so i you know they're trying to move towards you'll be unsurprised to hear a private label strategy but that well, that's been going for a while yeah, but the thing is i want aesop i don't want whatever their private label is that's not why i'm going to them and like it's not like kogan where private label is now a significant part of their business like well kogan started as private well, label that's a that great was point. whole business that's a great point and so you know, this just, again, you got to say, if we go back to my very first Google search, maybe this is me taking my love for DTC full circle. When I searched that first Google search, how much would you rather be Aesop than being whoever I clicked on to buy oh. the Aesop? I mean, Aesop no is comparison. such a good business. When oh. you own the brand and you own the product, you have this inbuilt competitive advantage 
that protects your margins over the long term. And this, why I keep saying I hate selling other people's stuff. It's just a much harder way to maintain margins. There's some good businesses on, uh, like Amazon's a lot of people's stuff. So I know AWS is most of the value there, but but Amazon's still a good business. There's one Amazon. There's one. There's one Amazon in the world. But you can't. But, but Coles and Woolworths are very good business selling other people's. Stuff. I think there is some private, fair bit of private label in there as well. They but, sell tons of home brands. Yeah, stuff. But they, but they, they essentially grew up selling other people's stuff. Like I, I don't think I think your broad brush Adam Schwab style. All right, let's, oh, let me modify. Let me modify. I don't mind selling other people's stuff if I can do it monopolistically or duopolistically. How about that? That's my modifier. I also don't think you compare. Aesop is an unbelievable. Aesop sold for like almost $4 billion. Yeah. Uh, it was brilliantly run. Michael's a great operator. Preet's an unbelievable operator. They got, they sell, it's a global product that is, I, I walked past, I was walking down um, Regent Street yesterday, waiting for the bus and saw an Aesop on Regent Street amongst all those near Hamleys, the toy shop. So it's it's a genuine global brand. So let's not compare people to Aesop. All right, but you get my point. You don't have to be that amazing for what I'm saying to be true, which is maybe I can summarize the kind of retail I like with this sentence. I want to be the brand that people are searching for. Even better, I want to be the brand they just come to knowing without searching when they think about it. But at the very worst – I want to be the brand that people are searching for. I don't want to be the click of where they buy it from. But I want to be both, obviously. I'm DTC. I want to be everything. But yeah. Well, you're right. I, I agree that your best businesses do own the full supply chain, but that's obviously very hard to do. It's a, it's a triple pike with three twists. So it's um, it's a hard thing. To, there were very few ASOPs in this world. It was unbelievably executed. Uh, very few ASOPs in Australia or globally. So, but I think going back to your door point, I think you're right. Your analysis is spot on. There's just no competitive advantage there. It's just another uh, business getting Google taxed out of existence, unfortunately. Uh, there's no real brand. Uh, we had a, a really good marketing head, Chelsea, who went over there to actually, I think, head up marketing for that private label. She's a super talent. I think she's actually just leaving the business to go to- Well, I'm not shocked by that. VC firm or something like that. But um, no, she's she gone to Caltramp actually, which is a really good business. So she was a, a great operator. So they're losing good people, which doesn't bode well. Uh, so if I'm Kate and Quadrant, I'm 100% selling to the heart. Like, I'm taking that cash and running. Well, that's what I don't understand. Like this is a business that even with now, I understand from their report, what I can say is the majority of revenue is coming from existing customers and they're still spending 15 or 16% of their revenue on advertising and it's up year on year. Now they have, you know, they've cut employee expenses by 10%. They're they're doing the right things. But I just think when you've got this business and this is what it looks like, all right, maybe they say no to a dollar twenty-five or a dollar thirty because it wasn't a real offer. You know, these non-binding indicative offers offer not real offers, right? But and they've come out and say it's too low. Maybe what they know is there's a few others circling. Maybe they think they can get a dollar fifty. But I can tell you, like, if I'm in a big shareholder in this business today. I'm not. But if I was a big shareholder in this business today, an exit that is saying, we're prepared to pay you $130, $140, 150000000 million of value, effectively a multiple of infinity, like I'd be taking it and walking off into the sunset. Like this business reminds me a lot of Booktopia, really nice founders, hardworking, smart, good people, but just selling undifferentiated product on tight margins against nasty competitors. Less bad than Booktopia because you're not competing against Amazon specifically, which is what Booktopia that's true. basically is doing. But that's probably the worst, the world's worst competitor. It's in the best operator, the worst competitor. Uh, but yeah, I, I, there's probably a bit of anchoring that the, the share price was six bucks at one stage. Maybe there's some some foolish shareholders who who's still around that paid that. But yeah, if you can get a dollar, if you can get 
30 cents for this, that's a win. Like, <laughs> that's a massive win. Well, they're not getting um, 30 cents. They're being offered – they're going to get more than a dollar. That's a huge they're win. They're going to get more than a dollar for this. And you can talk about anchoring, and I think anchoring – you know I love behavioral economics, and anchoring is very powerful. But they actually managed – it's not like they missed that price. They got that price – they sold down into that price. That was the original IPO price. Well, found. I'm, I'm, I'm talking about buy. I'm talking about investors, speculators, investors. I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the owners. Of course, I, I think. I reckon Kate and, and Quadrant would happily sell. I don't speak for them, but I reckon they happily sell. It well, this. you're wrong because they own fifty percent of the company. If they would happily sell into this, and it was a real offer, I just keep saying that. Like, I know what it's like on the inside. Yeah, I, don't, of, I don't know if it's a real offer if, yet. Yeah, no. but if it was a real offer. And they wanted to sell into it. They could sell into it. When you when you control fifty percent of a company, and you want to do scheme of arrangement, and you've got to get to seventy five percent, you can get to seventy. It takes a lot of angry, significant shareholders to stop you. And there are not really many other very significant shareholders in this business. They own fifty percent of the business. You know when um when you when you got something and you, and you, you someone that makes you an offer that's way more than you think it's worth, maybe you just don't want. Maybe you just don't want to look that keen. So. You know, like yeah, I'm, I'm buying. No, your, no, you, you got a car. Right. You want to get ten grand off you twenty. You know, I'll take, the, I'll take the twenty. You still say, oh, I was right. expecting thirty, but I'll take your twenty. Like, there's probably a bit of that. The problem is this: the share price was ninety cents before they released that media comment disclosing the not the NBIO. Even at ninety cents, there's an eighty ninety million dollar valuation on this business like the cash and like the balance sheet largely cancels itself out there might be 10 or 15 million dollars really net on the balance sheet that you could liberate so the problem is they were anchored to 90 they got offered an nbio on the usual 30 percent premium so you're right it might just be a game and so maybe i'm not really being critical of the directors or the founders or whatever in not accepting it what i'm saying is this is a deal that somebody should figure out how to get done 100%. and get this thing yeah. sold and delisted from the ASX because I just don't see where the happy days are going to be no, coming from with this business. I, th- I think we'll probably wrap up. That's been a, 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 this is one of my favorite episodes ever, I reckon. Because you don't have to create any intros. That's, that's why. That's probably why. As you know, we're, we're, we're going to do another episode next week. The Contrarians doesn't rest for the summer break like small business that we talked about last week, but we, we punch through uh, and hopefully keep our listeners entertained over these long summer days. Do you like how I... I stalled through this episode because this episode was basically just the endless intro, I'd call it. Pretty much, yeah. And so I stalled all the way through so that we didn't have to do my pathetic predictions this <laughs> week, but I am prepared to do my pathetic predictions next week, okay? And mate, I, got, I got some rippers, so I'm sure you'll have, have some great predictions for next week as, as well. No, I won't. I'm, I, I, I literally twice just call them pathetic predictions. Like, they're going to be totally pathetic. Well, don't talk yourself down because you anchor, anchor, anchor on a higher bait. That's, that's some bad anchoring we got going on. Here. Well, there's two arguments to that. One is anchor high and get people to, you know, that that's the behavioral economics argument. And the other one is set the bar of expectation as low as humanly possible. <laughs> I think there's some cases where you don't want to under-promise. I think we want to over-promise here. I'm sure, you're, I'm, I'm sure your predictions will be incredible. I'm very confident. No, I, what I can promise you is by saying pathetic predictions, I am not underselling myself. You, you will be shocked at how poor they are. Well, I know you'll be spending the whole week working on them. So I'm looking forward to the homework you'll be doing this week. I've done my homework last week, so I'm mine are ready to go. Uh, so this has been a, a great episode. Uh, we have next week's episode will be on time and on budget. Thanks to all our listeners. We also do. A, I think we're going to do a listener question episode as well in a couple of weeks, which is which should be super fun. Yeah, we've got a lot of questions. Yeah, and so feel free. I send them to to our in my Instagram, Adam J Schwab at Instagram. Um, for your, and we got one across on LinkedIn as well, so you can do it by LinkedIn if you've got a text question. So 
love to get your questions. The more, the better. And we'll try and get to one a week if we have time. We keep jabbering on. If people haven't joined our LinkedIn page, they're missing out on millions of dollars basically. So everyone should join the LinkedIn page. Well, I'm actually about to do an article for our, our first, I used to write for Crikey, as you know, but they've now become uh, so sort of anti-Semitic, I refuse to write for them anymore. But I'm about to, um, to, to, what, I, I, for every year I did an annual business awards with my favorite article of the year. So I'm about oh, to release like it exclusively this. to our, our LinkedIn page. So Really? That's uh, fantastic. Great read. So, and I'm sure you'll do some of your great AFR style content on the page as well. So looking yeah, forward to that. Yeah, that's fantastic. I've got to go to a kid's play center. Uh, it is now nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the UK. So I bet it, you've been very good staying up so late. Mike's been great. Don't you want to wish me happy new year before we go? I hate new years. I think it's the biggest waste of time ever. Are you a big new year's oh, fan? Oh God, I'm sorry I raised this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I don't. I feel completely dispassionately That's about right. new oh, years, but I was just trying to do, you know, we had this whole standing ovation thing and I'm like, as you know, I, I've spent a lot of mental energy trying to do the socially appropriate thing. And so I thought, well, it's, it seems pretty uncontroversial that the socially appropriate thing at this time of year is to say, wishing you a happy new year, have a great blah, 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 some random words of motherhood statements. And so I was just going to do that, but I mean, I don't want to offend you. You'll be shocked to know I hate random, I hate uh, random causes of celebration that have no link to an underlying reason for it. So, what you mean, like every cause of celebration? Well, Seinfeld's got that great line for happy birthday. All I've done is not die for a year. So, to me, New Year's Eve is an example of that. Like, a, oh, you celebrate if you if you've had a baby, or you've you've reached a milestone, or you're you've floated your company on sex or what there's plenty of reasons to celebrate but simply like living another year and everybody on the planet doing the same I don't, I don't see the reasons to celebrate that well firstly let me tell you since you mentioned seinfeld you can go and re-watch the episode where he goes to a rental car company you'll enjoy that yeah, a great episode. conversation yeah. but you know what at the moment in the world the entire world not dying for another year is somewhat of an achievement <laughs> so maybe that is something to celebrate and hopefully i say this actually with complete sincerity hopefully next year it will be a more peaceful year because things were looking a bit bad with some wars, Russian, Ukrainian war, and they got a hell of a lot worse in the last quarter of this year. And as we go into the end of this year, they look terrible. And so I really hope that something will change next year and it will be a happier year. So do I. And on that hopefully more positive note, we'll say goodbye and I'll see you uh, next week. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to The Contrarians with Adam and Adir. If you want to submit a question for the show, please send a voice recording to Adam J. Schwab at Instagram. Today's show was produced by Mike Liberale. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. Please give us a rating and don't forget to tell your friends. We'll be back next week for our weekly analysis of all things growth and tech.